Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. How's that? That's better. Come with your Bibles to John chapter 12 and go down to verse 37, please. John 12, verse 37. If you can, when you get that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. But Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Lord, let our hearts be fertile grounds this morning. Let your word go forth and abide and cause us to bear much fruit. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. It is possible to sin in such a way that God will eventually and permanently harden someone's heart. And yet some people still idolize the wicked. There are people even today who admire people like Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler. The outlaw gunfighter Billy the Kid killed eight men before he was gunned down at age 21. There have been at least ten movies with Billy the Kid in the title. And many more movies where Billy the Kid was a part of the plot line. That includes the 1966 classic, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. But even though he is dead, his bad boy reputation lives on. But on Judgment Day, everyone will see the horror of his evil acts, and his eternal punishment will clearly reveal the cruel man that he really was. Or how about Bonnie and Clyde? They robbed at least 12 banks and killed 15 people. The one website refers to them as Romeo and Juliet in a getaway car. Their story still captivates people today. They remain immortal through their photographs as well as an Academy-winning movie that depicted their lives. But once again, Judgment Day is going to reveal them for who they truly were. And that was two cold-blooded killers 
who robbed families of their loved ones. And on that day, their eternal sins will remove any perceived shine they had from their misdeeds. They are good examples of what can happen if God hardens someone's heart. Look at verse 37 with me. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We have learned as we make our way through the Bible that miracles don't produce faith. Romans 10:17 is clear on this point where we are told, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The only path to faith is to be in the word and grab hold of the word. Here John quoted Isaiah the prophet from chapter 53 where we read, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus is picking up these words and applying them to his own ministry. But when did Isaiah see the Lord? This is Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of the death of Uzziah the king, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and raised throne, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. The thing that Isaiah saw was God's train or robe, and he noticed that it filled the entire temple. That suggests that there is no room for anyone else at the highest pinnacle of the universe. It's not just that Jehovah reigns, but also that no one reigns beside him or in opposition to him. In the same way, it's not just that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is also that no one else is Lord. So when God tells us in the Ten Commandments that we can have no other gods before him, he doesn't mean that as long as we put him first, we can have three or four gods after him. No, he means we can have no other god before him as in his presence. He is a jealous God the same way that we should be jealous of our spouses. Ladies, how would it work if your husband said, I will have no other women before you. I will be completely devoted to you 348 days out of the year. But every once in a while, I'm going to need to take my old girlfriend for a romantic weekend in the Smokies. I know most of you ladies well enough to know that if that happened, I'll be doing a lot of funerals around here. But this causes us to ask whether this is true for us personally. Is Jesus Lord? There is no one beside him, but is he Lord in our lives? Or is he forced to compete with our own conflicting loyalties? Does his train fill the entire temple of our soul or does he occupy just a corner of the throne room while we try to crowd in many other items also? Now, God knew this would be their response, but notice it says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord in the Old Testament speaks of his strength, his power, and his miracles. 
And the arm of the Lord was constantly revealed through the life of Christ. And yet, in the face of all of these miracles, they still continued in unbelief. Now, it is also possible to translate verse 38 by using another translation of the Greek word lying behind the word that. The word can mean in order that, which would tend to put the blame for their unbelief upon God, but it can also mean so that or consequently. If that is so, the verse could be translated, they didn't believe consequently the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled John's point is not that God made them disbelieve it is that God had prophesied it long before it had even happened and we'll get into more of that in a minute verse 39 please therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. First, he is talking about those who have had the opportunity to see the light, but yet still refuse to believe. Notice how they are described in verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. But then it says in verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe in him. In my Bible, I have underlined in verse 37, would not believe, and in verse 39, could not believe. I've linked the two. Notice carefully what Jesus is saying. He is saying there are some people who would not believe. And as a direct consequence of that, there came a time when they could not believe. There's a simple law that says if you go on banging your hand against a piece of wood because you're into karate, eventually you will develop calluses. There is another simple law. If you go on closing your eyes to the truth, you will finish blinded. Likewise, if you go on closing your heart to the truth, it will finish calloused. God says so. So with that said, I find it intriguing that those who would not believe in verse 37 could not believe in verse 39. Since they didn't want to believe, they weren't able to believe because God has hardened their hearts. Why? To ratify their choice. And the same is true today. To those who don't want to believe, to those who continually stand in a posture of unbelief, there may come a time when they cannot believe. But what are the verses that quote Isaiah 6, 9, someone may ask? Do they not explicitly say that God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts? Precisely so that those involved might not see, understand, or turn to Christ. Now, at first glance, this does seem patently unfair. I mean, how can someone be prevented from believing and then be justly punished for unbelief. 
Now, this is where we must understand the nature of divine hardening. In the case of Jesus, his truth became the means by which their hearts were either softened to the point of surrender or hardened to their chosen state of rebellion. When the Bible states that the Lord hardens someone's heart, what exactly does that mean? As I said, initially, it would appear to be unjust. How can the Lord justify punishing someone for rejecting him when that person's heart has been hardened by God himself? That's a good question. Let me try to answer it. Above everything else, we must say that if God chooses to intervene in a specific way in a sinful individual's life to harden that life so that the individual cannot believe on Christ, then God is right in so acting. If that is what he actually does, and notice I only say if, then God is just. And no man, least of all ourselves, has the slightest ground for ever rebuking him. As Paul says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? By no means. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those that he wishes to harden. If God would harden hearts as a result of which men and women cannot believe and be judged for it, then that's just the way it is. And God is guiltless in doing so. We are in no position to judge him by our limited wisdom and our inadequate standards. However, other scripture tells us clearly that God wants none to perish. So if people are hardened, I believe they play a large part in that hardening. But it is a sobering reality for all of us this morning that those who persistently harden their hearts against God may one day find themselves hardened against him and that without remedy. The historical records of God dealing with Pharaoh illustrates that principle, noting that ten different times Pharaoh hardened his heart. That means that Pharaoh stubbornly dedicated himself to evil in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. This was Pharaoh's personal choice in that he chose evil. God did not choose it for him. However, the Lord did harden him. That is, God only solidified his resolve to pursue the evil that was already deeply embedded in his own heart. And the Lord was completely righteous in doing so. Remember, he does not owe grace to anybody. Every one of us has sinned at least once and therefore falls short of the glory of God. I bet some of us have even sinned four or five times over a lifetime. Therefore, God was no less just to allow Pharaoh to remain in his chosen evil and to suffer the consequences because of that. So that shows us that God's hardening and Pharaoh's hardening, they're not at odds. In fact, they are complementary. Or as the old saying goes, the sun, by the force of its heat, moistens the wax, but also dries the clay, thereby softening the one and hardening the other. Consequently, when in terms of salvation, it is hardly necessary for God to have to blind or harden anyone. 
For we were all willfully blinded by the sins that we chose to commit. Now we are told that even though Jesus did so many miracles, they still would not believe in him. So we see that he begins with their unbelief. And it is only after this that he knows that God hardened their hearts, lest then they should see and be converted. In other words, this is a judicial activity. In the beginning, they would not believe. Afterwards, they could not believe. God's hardening of hearts is a judicial hardening of those who have already turned from the light and chosen to walk in the darkness. But why, we might ask, does not God just save everyone then? Why does he not just intervene to save all mankind before they persist in their unbelief and enter into a greater darkness for eternity? Now, these are difficult words, both because they speak of God's sovereign purpose in the affairs of man and also because they speak of man's responsibility. Now, the sovereignty of God is something of which we have no control over and of which we only possess a very limited understanding. On the other hand, responsibility is something that we must each concern ourselves with personally. I can tell us this. When a person starts to resist the light, something begins to change within them, and they may come to a point where they can no longer believe. There is a judicial blindness that God can permit to come over the eyes of people who do not take his truth seriously. It is a serious thing to treat God's truth lightly, for a person may well miss the opportunity of ever being saved. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Well, the unwritten thought there is there may come a time when God is not near and therefore cannot be found. So let me ask you, have you responded to the light that you have been given? We must all respond and be converted if we are going to go to heaven. That means we must turn from sin to Christ. For conversion is nothing but doing an about-face or a U-turn. It means leaving everything that might exert a contrary claim upon us in order to have and follow the Lord. So we see that God's saving involves justification, sanctification, and glorification for which God alone is sovereignly responsible. So we're back to our question. Is God unfair? Absolutely not. He didn't make mankind a bunch of meat robots. He gave us a free will, and included in that free will is the ability to accept or reject the love that he has for us. Maybe this story will help. In his book, Stealing from God, Frank Turk writes, Atheist Eddie Tabash asked me the following question during our debate at the University of Michigan. He began, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She suffered greatly during her entire life. Before she died, a Christian shared the gospel with her, but she rejected it. Is she in hell right now, Frank? 
Turk writes, well, Eddie certainly knows how to ask a tough question. He said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is right now. I don't know if she may have had a deathbed conversion. But if she didn't, God didn't force her into heaven against her will. If she didn't want Jesus on earth, she will not want him in eternity. God respects our choices. To illustrate the point, I asked the ladies in the audience that night if they ever had a guy pursue them who they didn't want to date. Most ladies began smiling and looking around while most men looked awkwardly at their shoes. I said, suppose this man continues to ask you out so many times that you finally say, look, I like you, but only as a friend. They completed the sentence for me. Every man, he said, has heard, has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Kirk continues, okay, suppose that doesn't deter him, and he continues to pursue you. He eventually says, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Can he do that? Can he force you to love him? Everyone agreed that it was impossible. You can't force someone to love you. I went on to explain that, is same, that same thing is true in our relationship with God. God can't force us to love him. Love, by definition, must be freely given, and it cannot be coerced. I then asked Eddie, after you told him to start pursuing you, if a man truly did love you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. And that's what God does with us. He makes his presence known through two books, the book of nature and the Bible, and also sometimes through his spirit, other believers, and sometimes even other special means. But if we continue to turn down his invitations, he eventually will leave us alone to pursue our own sinful and evil desires. I thought Frank Turek nailed that perfectly. As Leon Morris notes, when John quotes, he hath blinded their eyes, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, make their own fault, and make no mistake about that. Verse 42 with me. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Is it possible to believe with Jesus, to believe in Jesus with our whole heart and yet not confess him openly? Now these questions are pertinent in the light of our text this morning. For it tells us that although the Jewish as a, as a people has largely rejected Christ while he was on earth, nevertheless many did believe in, on him even though they did not confess him publicly. It says at the same time even some of the leaders believed on him but because of the pharisees they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue why the bible tells us for they love the praise of men more than the praise of god now on the surface the text seems to say that silent belief is possible for they believed on christ yet they did not confess him but at the same time, the language is such that we have to naturally wonder if the belief was actually genuine as in saving belief. I mean, James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. 
We can hardly avoid contrasting these verses with Christ's own statement recorded in Luke 12, in which he says explicitly, Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. It says these men believed on Christ if they did not confess him because they didn't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue. But think about it. Why did they value that so highly? If you think from a few weeks back, the man who had been blind was excommunicated from the synagogue, yet he willingly endured that for the joy of knowing the Lord. So what was wrong with these rulers? How sad this is, really. How tragic. No doubt, as William Barclay writes, these rulers thought themselves wise and prudent men. No doubt they thought they were playing it safe. But their wisdom did not extend to remembering that the opinion of men might matter for the few years in which they lived upon this earth, but the judgment of God matters for all eternity. So were these people truly converted? Only God knows. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Now, romantic men and women love candlelight dinners. Do you know why? Because in a darkened room, we all look a lot better. The flaws and the wrinkles are not just as discernible in the dark because darkness conceals reality now if you're under 30 you'll just have to accept that by faith just know that in the end gravity is going to win I don't care how many alfalfa milkshakes you want to drink first Thessalonians 5 7 says for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night most crimes, most drunkenness, most immorality occurs under the cover of darkness. It's just easier to conceal our behavior in the dark. For instance, Jesus was arrested at night. He even said, I was teaching every day in the temple. Why didn't you come and arrest me in the daylight? Then he added, but now is your hour when darkness reigns. But light exposes reality. And the reality is there is no hope in this dark world apart from the life and the light of Christ. He came into this world to show us the way, to attract us to himself, and to guide us into all truth. Jesus even said, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me would have to stay in darkness. If you had a blind man and you had the ability to give him sight, but with his sight he would have to live in poverty, or in his blindness you could give him a million dollars, if it were you, which would you take? You would take the light. Because if you don't have the light, all the beautiful things in this world are beyond you. In the same way, a beacon guides home an airplane in foggy conditions. A lighthouse steers a ship away from danger. The reflectors on the highway and the median will get a driver through wet conditions. And likewise, Jesus came as a light to guide us. 
When you face a major decision in life, you do not have to make that decision alone. He will guide you. Now, he most likely won't speak to you in an audible voice, but Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and then he will direct your paths. The Bible becomes a lamp under your feet and a light onto your path. The Holy Spirit illuminates your conscience so you have more of a sensitivity of what is right and what is wrong. As you begin to read, as you begin to hear counsel, that helps you to be sensitive to his direction. He will direct you as a Christian at times when you aren't even aware of his providence. I can't tell you how many times in my life that just the right person, just the right circumstance, just the right protection has been there. John 8, 12 reads, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul even likens us to shining stars, as that word shine there means to reflect. The scripture says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being ever transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Listen, we can't produce light, but we can reflect it. We are like the moon. I guess in that sense, we could be called moonies. But if we exalt Christ in our lives and in our church, people will be drawn to him. But when we try to be glory thieves and steal the spotlight ourselves, the world senses that's just an ego trip and they are repulsed. It was said of John the Baptist, he was not the light, but came only as a witness to the light. Let that be our goal this morning. Verse 47, please. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my words, as that which judges him, the word that I have spoken, will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus says, you just don't accept or reject me. I'm the very ambassador of God. I didn't come to judge, says Jesus. My first coming, I've come to save. But if you don't believe me, the word itself that I have given you, that word will one day condemn you and judge you. If you don't accept the free gift of salvation, my words will condemn you on that last day and will haunt you through eternity. Jesus has often told us that he and the Father are one in all that they do and who they are. And really, only Jesus fully understands God the Father. Now, great people have discovered and taught many true and noble things about God, but no one has known him with the intimacy that Jesus had. When Gandhi was dying, one of his relatives came up to him and said, You have been looking for God all your life. Have you found him yet? No, was the reply. 
I'm still looking. Now, you have to give it to him. The honesty of Gandhi shone through in a remark like that. But it stands in stark contrast with Jesus, who says, No one knows the Father except the Son. And by knowing the Son is the only way any of us can escape the coming judgment. As we finish up this morning, Erwin Lutzer writes, The only way to escape judgment is through repentance. When the Titanic sank, it went under with 1,522 people, all knowing they were going to a watery grave. After the news of the tragedy reached the world, the challenge was how to inform the relatives whether their loved ones were among the dead or among the living. At the White Star office in Liverpool, England, a huge sign was set up. One side read, known to be saved. The other side read, known to be lost. Hundreds of people gathered every day to watch the signs. And when a messenger came with new information, the question always was, to which side would he go and whose name would be on the cardboard? Lutzer then finishes with these words. Although the travelers on the Titanic were designated either first, second, or third class, after the ship went down, there were only two categories, saved and lost. Just so, we can divide people into many different classes based on geography, race, education, and wealth. But on the day of judgment, there's only going to be two classes, the saved and the lost. And so Jesus ends chapter 12. He ends his public ministry with a promise that those who embrace his word will have life everlasting. Now finished talking with the crowd. He now is going to huddle his most intimate followers together. And in the next three chapters, known as the Upper Room Discourse, he's going to give them the ultimate lessons, the heaviest and the most meaningful teachings. In a way, it's the pep talk before kickoff, or it's the last-minute strategy before the final invasion, which we will get into next week. Let us pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you have the ability to soften every heart in this room and every heart that will hear this on the Internet. Lord, you and you alone know where mankind stands with you in each individual heart. I pray, Lord, that if any of the people are not saved, that they would realize that none of us are promised tomorrow. This could be the day of salvation for them. And the chance of you hardening a person's heart to me is just horrifying to even think about, to have no chance of being saved. Let there not be said of anyone within the sound of my voice today. And Lord, for those of us who are saved, I pray that that would just encourage us so much, knowing that you look down upon us and you chose us out from among our darkness. And you made us to walk in your marvelous light. Have your way in our lives, Father. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.